You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Before we get into our episode today, I just want to thank all of our listeners. Really appreciate the support. You know, the show has really gone off to a great start and we continue to grow. And we've got a really a lot of fun things up and coming in the near future for the summer and, and coming into the fall. Also, if there's anything you'd like to hear that we're not asking some of these millionaires, some questions you'd like answered or something maybe we're not building on, please reach out to us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We're work- we continue to work on uh, other things with the podcast, audio quality. We're adding some rapid-fire questions, and we have also have a lot of new professions build up. So we have some exciting interviews coming up in the next couple months, and uh, we look forward to sharing them. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. So on today's show, we have Steve, and he has a current net worth of about $3.4 million. And he's different. It's kind of a different interview because he worked at the same corporate job as an engineer for 30 years. And so we discuss his career, why he stayed, kind of some of the perks of staying versus jumping around in careers, and then also talked about how he was able to build his investments while at this company. So he has about $2 million in IRAs now because he's retired. Some of that came from 401k money. He inherited about 50k. And he also talks about three or four side gigs that he does now that help him to make about $100,000 a year. And then another piece of advice he touches on is same house, same spouse, and same cars, talking about how he was able to maintain and grow his net worth. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Steve. All right, welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Today on the show, we've got Steve. Steve, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. Uh, Jason Clark, it's a pleasure to be here. I am a chemical engineer, uh, grew up and worked in Arkansas for my entire entire career. Uh, I've worked for the same company for my entire career for over 30 years, which is makes me something of a unicorn, I think. Nobody does that now. Um, but I did. I started as an entry-level uh, engineering intern and worked my way up to the top job uh, at, in the corporation in our state. I had uh, 700 employees when I retired. And three years ago, I did. Uh, I was 59, and I decided to retire. And uh, then I started up a bunch of side gigs, and uh, including some blogging. And uh, that's what I'm doing now. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? Well, it's $25,000 less than it was yesterday, thanks to personal capital informing me of that, but it's about about $3.4 million. You probably can lose twenty five grand at lunch or make twenty five grand at lunch with the market nowadays. I know. It's ironic because when I started work, I made 18000 a year, and that was the highest job offer that anyone got at my university in chemical engineering, and now that's you can lose that by noon. you know. Yeah. So how is that broken up? Okay, it's a it's a pretty long list of uh, of things. I, I basically have have my investments at three different places: um, uh, Vanguard, Personal Capital, and Betterment. And I've got close to a million and a half at Vanguard, and and about the same at Personal Capital, and smaller amount, maybe two hundred thousand at Betterment. And uh, at the Vanguard, about 
800,000 of that is under their active management and about 600,000 is under, uh, it's sitting in a money market fund. That's kind of my opportunity capital. That's the only part I manage right now. It's all in cash. Okay. And how, how is this all divided between retirement, whether it's tax deferred or Roth and then, you know, your, your uh, personal investments, taxable investments? I'm pretty fortunate and then I've got about half of it in tax deferred and the other half is in uh, non-taxable, uh, a small amounts in Roth. The rest of it's just regular uh, taxable investments sitting in brokerage accounts. Um, the, uh, the overall breakdown is, is, uh, uh, is about a little less than 50% equities and then the rest is in uh, bonds and uh, cash equivalents. Okay. And over the years, how has this kind of evolved to where you are now? I'm assuming, obviously, Betterment wasn't even a company several years ago, and same with personal capital. So how have you kind of evolved your investments over the years to get to where they are now? I think I pretty well mirror what the rest of the world is doing now. Back in the day, you know, this was a long time ago when I started work. It was in the uh, uh, early 1980s, basically. And there weren't even 401ks at our company. So any investment I did was in kind of a uh, thrift savings plan of sorts. It, it was similar to a uh, 401k, but but when the 401ks came out and our company changed ownership, they cashed everybody out of that. So I really didn't have any savings investment type uh, or retirement type savings the first 10 years I worked. Um, but, or I'd actually have more than I do now. But once the 401k started, I put, I maxed out the 401k just every year that I could. Of course, the maximum contribution limits 30 years ago were a lot less than they are now. But I maxed those out and I put it in 100% equities. And, and they really didn't have index funds. So I just uh, put it in a diversified mix of, of growth and value and large cap and mid cap and some uh, uh, international funds. And they were basically fairly high fee, uh, you know, the kind of funds that most people don't invest in now. They pick index funds, but those really weren't available then. Uh, and fairly early on, I got on the committee that ran our 401k and, and helped them push to very low funds and then eventually into index funds. But early on, I was just doing the standard stuff. And then outside of, we saved a lot more than, than even maxing out the 401k, we still saved more. We we probably saved 25, 35% of our income most years. And uh, those went into standard uh, things like American funds. Um, again, I wasn't that sophisticated and I was paying fairly high fees, but most of the funds we picked also were pretty good performers. So we didn't get killed uh, with fees. If I had it to do over again, I think I could have done a little better because I didn't really pay much attention. I don't think anyone did 30 years ago about fund fees. They were all universally pretty high, and people just thought that was the way it was. But uh, that's what I did, basically. I stayed in stock on just about everything. We had a little liquid cash kind of emergency fund that was in CDs, but everything else went into equities, which was a really smart move because by the time I retired, I had almost a million and a half in my 401k and then almost that much in uh, other accounts. That's interesting that you say you didn't start you know, fully until about 10 years after you started working and you've still obviously been able to be extremely successful kind of talk about that what led to what led to the initial 
uh, investment or the initial starting? Well, we did save money. We just we just put a lot of it in a house, a very inexpensive house. Uh, when I bought the first house, which is the one we're still in, kind of like the same job the entire career, I'm still in the only house I've ever had. And we've added on and made it larger, but it basically cost about one year combined salary of my wife and myself at the time. And uh, and then by the time I retired, it was worth about six months salary, even though it, it had gone up from a house that we bought for 32000 to a house that was worth a little over 200000 uh, That still was a pretty modest house for our income and our net worth, but uh, I'm convinced that that houses, cars, and divorces are the three things that keep most people from ever attaining any kind of wealth. But uh, I had I was a saver from the start. I, my parents were uh, great teachers. I mean, they never made much money. My mom was a school teacher and my dad sold insurance, but they, uh, they saved a lot of money and they, they always had money. They were just frugal spenders. And my dad was very open about his investments. He had, he was a computer guy and he had spreadsheets back before people even knew what they were. And he would, would always call my brother in and, and me and show me what he had in municipal bonds, what he had in stock funds. And, and so we watched his net worth as he grew it up to, you know, a small seven figure account by the time uh, he passed away. Uh, and for a guy that probably never made over 40,000 a year, that was, uh, that was quite a feat. It impressed me that if you just controlled your expenses and uh, saved aggressively, it wasn't hard to generate a few million bucks. Yeah. So you have, just kind of going through what you sent over, you have IRA, Roth IRAs and traditional IRAs for both you and your wife, with the largest being, it looks like your Vanguard IRA with about $1.3 million. Is that right? Yeah, that was my uh, 401k that I oh, wrote 401k. Over. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, but it's an IRA now. Right. So. Yeah, we uh, we put everything we could into the 401k. Now, we had a company plan that didn't have the safe harbor provisions. So at the end of the year, if um, the highly compensated employees, which included me, amounted to over a certain percentage of the plan, then they kicked some of the money back out of the plan uh, because they had a a ratio for the highly compensated employees to the other employees. So I never was able to put the legal maximum into the 401k because we had enough uh, lower compensated employees that just didn't want to participate. So that was always a little bit of a disappointment. But besides that, we either maxed out a Roth or, or an uh, after-tax regular IRA each year for both of us. And that's why there, after a while, I was making too much money to uh, contribute to a Roth. And so that's when we switched to a traditional IRA, except it wasn't tax exempt. The, the growth was tax deferred, but you put taxed, pre-taxed money in just like a, a Roth at that point, because that was the only option we had. And then we also put money in regular brokerage accounts. Sure. So you mentioned your brother and your dad and watching your dad save, you have a couple inherited Roths from your dad. Talk about that a little bit. Did you know you were going to inherit that? And, and maybe what's the process of that happening? We did. Uh, my dad had Parkinson's, which is a terrible progressive disease, but it didn't affect us mentally at all. But it also made him know that he only had a few years to live. And so he was, he, he, he had, uh, given us the spreadsheets and, and all the statements. And we were 
actually handling his finances for him there at the end. And I became the executor just because I lived close to my dad. My brother's also retired early and he's also a multimillionaire and uh, in similar situation to me. And uh, uh, we knew we had IRAs coming and uh, it, it really wasn't too complicated. My dad had set up some trusts, which he didn't really need to do because he didn't have anywhere close to the inheritance tax limit, but he had set those up and he had made us beneficiaries of the trusts. And so all the accounts went in there 50% to each of us. And he had numerous accounts. And uh, when he died and it was split into two new trusts, one owned by me and one owned by my brother, we just immediately dissolved those and just moved those funds into our own accounts. Now inherited IRAs, whether it's a Roth or a regular one, uh, for somebody that is, was 89 years old, like my dad, automatically have required minimum distributions. But fortunately, the uh, whether it's Betterment or personal capital, uh, they they do that automatically for you. It's a standard IRS formula, and they they don't send us a check. They just reinvest the money that's pulled out of that account into an account that's not a Roth or not an IRA. I may be wrong. I'm not sure the Roth, since it's not taxed, I don't think it has a minimum distribution. I think it's just the regular IRAs. But all those buckets of money are tracked separately for, you know, for perpetuity. But fortunately, uh, all the uh, brokerage companies do that for you because I don't know how you'd do it otherwise. Yeah, so is is the Betterment accounts that you've signed up with, are those pretty new given their balances? I'm not... I'm not sure I understand what, what you're asking there. Are, are those, is that kind of a new experiment that you've put money into, into Betterment to see how it performs and see how it goes, given that it's a new startup type company? All, I pretty much did everything, Betterment and uh, Personal Capital and Vanguard, all at the same time. Um, I moved money out, money out of other accounts about that time, all the stuff that we had had with uh, local investment advisors. I had become convinced that that paying two percent to anybody was a, a little high when I because I had a lot of investment experience myself. Uh, I ran a four hundred one k plan or with a few other people that had thirty million dollars in it, and uh, I'm on a committee that manages a sixty million dollar endowment for a local charity, and then I, there was a third profit sharing. Uh, account of about 20 million that we that I also spent several years investing so I had a lot of highly paid experts helping us with that some hundred million dollars that we were investing for the last 20 years basically so I've gotten a lot of uh, free education on the job and uh, uh, but ironically I don't like managing my own money and that's why I decided I would uh, go with a combination of robo and uh I guess you'd say semi-robo-advisors to uh, to keep the fees fairly low. The average fee for the money I've got invested is probably a little less than half a percent. Still a lot higher than doing it myself, but, but I just don't enjoy doing it myself. And I liked the idea of splitting it between Vanguard, which had the Boglehead pure investment or index fund theory, which Betterment is pretty much the same thing. And... Uh, personal capital, which has a smart beta approach, which is entirely different. 
and I think there's some real diversity in, uh, in not having everything the same way. You know, and index funds are fairly new and, and they're great on paper, but I just hated to put uh, 100% of my nest egg in what's a fairly new approach. And I also like personal capital strategy. So far, they've, they've all done really well. But of course, you really had would it really have had to screw up to lose money in the last eight or nine years. So <laughs> that's true. So how long did you use a financial advisor for then? Uh, we we had we had a significant amount under personal advisors for gosh twenty five years I guess. Wow. It wasn't the biggest. The biggest single chunk was always in the four hundred one k, and I did that myself. But we only had a few funds to pick from, and so I just just split it up among the ones that were there. And as being on the committee, we constantly evaluated those funds, both for fees and for return. And we were throwing out the losers and bringing in new winners, we thought, fairly frequently. So I was pretty comfortable doing that because I was getting all the background intelligence on all those companies when we decided to use them. How come you haven't ever ventured into real estate or any other investment vehicles? Well, actually, I did uh, very early on before we bought our house. And this is a real Arkansas sounding thing. But we actually moved into a mobile home or a house trailer, as it's more affectionately known, uh, because I decided why pay rent? Let's just we'll just put it in the trailer and then we'll rent that when we get a house. And we did that and paid paid it off and got all our money back. But but I determined that I, I was not a landlord from that. I could not throw single mothers out into the cold when they wouldn't pay the rent. And, uh, the people, you know, you don't get the highest quality tenants when you're renting something that's ridiculously inexpensive. So it just gave me a, a bad experience with the whole idea. And I do have personal capital does have some exposure to, uh, REITs. It's not huge, but, but there is some real estate in there and there's some commodities. There's some stuff like gold, and, uh, and then there's even some alternative investments, uh, but they're fairly small in, in there. But I, uh, I just didn't like the uh, management side of it. Also, the area that uh, I live in is not growing, and so property values are not really escalating very fast. And I, and I certainly didn't like the idea of being an out-of-town landlord where I couldn't keep an eye on property. I just decided the stock market was a, a lot better passive income source for us. My wife was not particularly interested in running properties either. So uh, just it just didn't seem very practical. It sounded like a lot of work. And my limited experience with it was really unpleasant. How is your allocation going to change over the next 10, 15, 20 years into your retirement? Well, unusually, I think it's going to get a little more aggressive because I am sitting on a lot of dry powder right now. I just don't like the price to earnings ratio of this market. And because I was moving big chunks of money out of uh, 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 my pre-retirement accounts into what I had set up as my post-retirement philosophy, I really think that I would like to be about 60-40, in stock equity uh, positions and 40% in, in bonds and cash. And I'm right now I'm more like think 45 48 percent stocks but i just don't want to move it right now i just uh you know we may have another two or three good years but at some point 
we're going to have to have a, a bigger correction than the one we just had, I think. You mentioned earlier that you've got a couple side hustles that you started after you retired. What are those side hustles, and, and how did you decide to get into those side hustles? Well, I thought a lot about it. I, the last four... My job had been tremendous fun for most of the 38 years. I mean, I would look forward to going to work on Mondays. Uh, I often said, not to my boss, but but to my spouse, that, you know, I'd do that job for half the pay. Or maybe I'd even pay them sometimes because it was just a very enjoyable work. It really suited me. Uh, but the last three or four years, we'd been taken over by a Fortune 500 company. It had been previously owned by a family. And while the compensation got a lot better, the uh, uh, working atmosphere, it was kind of exciting at first. But the last couple of years, I didn't like it. So I had two years where I knew I was going to leave and I had time to think. And I I put a lot of time into thinking about what did I really enjoy at work and and what did I not enjoy. And uh, I came up with a couple of side gigs, uh, invented a job. There was nobody doing it before I got out. But our company and, and several other companies uh, would come together on some regulatory issues uh, and hire an expert to resolve those for us so that 10 companies could each pay one-tenth of the cost and everybody get the same benefit. And I, I formed a, a couple of groups to do that. And that had been being done kind of by a volunteer board up till then. But the guys that knew how to do that except for me, had all already retired. And so I just pitched some of the other CEOs and and, uh, business owners in the state to uh, just pay me to be that expert and represent them. You know, I I ran a big company like they did. I thought the way they did, and I could advise them on what the right decisions to make on these regulatory issues. And, uh, you know, the week before I retired, uh, those boards voted to hire me as an independent contractor to do that work and uh that's worked that was three years ago it's been worked great ever since and then in addition to that i had done some testifying on uh litigation for our company and the uh a big case we won 70 plus million dollars in a lawsuit against an insurance company and part of that was was my testimony with that law firm i i had told them i'd be interested after i retired and doing expert witness work if they had any come up that were along the lines of my expertise. And, and over the last two years, I off and on, I've worked one case for them and probably work some more. It was a lot of fun uh, doing expert witness work, I thought. And then uh, I also do some just plain old plant consulting. If somebody can't get their facility to run right, I, I'd spent a long time in technical service before I got into just managing facilities and, uh, there's some areas I know a lot about that regular uh, consulting on, on uh, chemical plant problems. And then I, uh, I'm a registered lobbyist in my career there in that 38 period, seven years of that I spent representing our industry, mostly in DC as a lobbyist. And then I came back to run the operation again. So I really enjoyed that work. There's nothing like being paid to be a lobbyist. It's a lot of fun. And so I do some of that now too. So really, it's, it's a little bit of a mix. It was all the things I kind of enjoyed doing without the things I didn't enjoy, which were handling the personnel problems for 712 employees 
that was never fun. <laughs> we're getting called out nights and weekends because something was on fire. That was never fun. So how much income are you making from these side gigs? About a hundred thousand, uh, sometimes a little more. Uh, and that's about what we spend. That's kind of coincidental. I, did, I didn't set it up. I kind of, the only rule I made in my mind was that I knew I wouldn't be very interested in something if it didn't pay at least a hundred dollars an hour. And typically I've been getting more like 200, 250 an hour for the work that I've done. And then found really that I'm undercharging, at least on the expert witness side, could probably do twice that. So wow. yeah, they'll probably get a rate increase if they call me back. <laughs> Good for you. And how many hours a week do you think you're working on these now? About 16 most of the time. It's not a lot. It's two days work. Uh, a lot of it is, uh, it's a couple hours to the state capitol from where I live. And like I drove up Monday for a one hour meeting basically and then stayed over because I had another one hour meeting today and then drove back. So I had four hours of driving and uh, no, eight hours, no, four hours of driving and a couple hours of real work. And that that might be what I do this week. I may not have to do any more on those projects. I, I'm just on a flat fee. I didn't set it up on an hourly basis with them because I knew there would be weeks where I'd work five days and there'd be weeks where I wouldn't work at all. So you've me, you know, it's interesting that you've worked for, for one company your entire career. What are some of the, the pros of doing that? And, and maybe some of the cons that you, that you noticed during your career? Well, the pros were, uh, you become pretty essential to the operation because most people don't stay there that long. And it's kind of fun too, because by the time I got ready to retire, I could walk through that plant, which was a, over a billion dollars of equipment. And a lot of the stuff there was stuff I designed and certainly stuff I started up and, and troubleshot and, uh, you know, engineers like to build things and, and I got to live with what I built. It was both good and bad. If I didn't build it very well, then I, I was saddled with the problems of operating it. But if I did a good job, uh, it's kind of like, I guess, a guy that builds bridges. You know, he, he can go across that bridge and he feels good that he built it. Well, I, I felt good about the work I had done, and it was very tangible. I could go out and see it and touch it. Uh, probably the downside is uh, uh, we were family-owned for most of that time, so... I probably could have made two or three times as much money had I gone to a uh, publicly traded company early in my career and stayed there. But frankly, I was making more money than I was spending. It was obvious I was going to have a lot of money in retirement. And uh, it just once you've got enough, it's not that much of a motivator. I've had several job offers since I retired, one for $1.2 million a year, and it took me. I mean, maybe 15 seconds to think about it and say, no, you know, that's way more than I ever made in a year at my job. But it, it just doesn't have a lot of uh, allure when you've got enough. So what age were you when you made your first million? That's a good question. I didn't really uh, track it. We didn't have personal capital. So adding it up was kind of a headache. I didn't do my net worth very often. I'm guessing uh, it would have been in my 40s, uh, but I'm not sure what day. I was having so much fun at work that I really thought I'd probably work into my 70s. It wouldn't be unusual uh, to do that. A lot of chemical engineers do. I really, really uh, got disillusioned with the job pretty fast uh, in my late 50s and just had no desire to go find another full-time job after that. 
So you said it's interesting. You just said, you know, at one point it comes that you have enough. So there, you know, there's this conversation about money bringing happiness, and a lot of the times, you know, everyone has these goals to be financially successful, and and maybe once they hit X amount of money, they retire or they stop working or they move on to their side gigs. At what point of money do you think maybe that happiness level kind of stagnated, or at what point did you say, you know what, I've made it, and and you didn't really feel that sense to to be financially successful further? That's a great question. Uh, I don't think it was the yearly compensation. I never really got tired of that. The last three years I made, uh, oh gosh, twice what I made three years before that. Uh, if you're an officer of the company, uh, your option or your ability to make appreciation rights. And uh, we had an IPO that I was able to buy into. So uh, it was very lucrative uh, the last few years. And I never got tired of the income because it, you know, as a guy that started making $18,000 a year, when you're up uh, approaching $500,000 a year, it's, 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 you just can't get used to the concept. Um, but the work had turned to, had gotten pretty brutal. Uh, it was just a rough atmosphere. And, uh, you know, if you're running a big facility and it's running at 99% efficiency instead of 100%, uh, you may be losing a million dollars a day that you could be making. And it's such a complex giant machine that it never runs at 100% efficiency, but uh, being held responsible to uh, achieve things that are humanly impossible, it gets old after a while. And then when you honestly realize you don't need any more money and that actually you can just kind of do stuff that's fun and make money you don't even need, uh, it's pretty easy to walk away. I, I, and I, I think I did it at just the right time. I wouldn't have wanted to do it earlier, but I certainly wouldn't have wanted to stay longer either. I think people, you just kind of know, or at least I did. I, I, I always thought I had a good deal of self-knowledge, and I could tell when the switch flipped inside from being happy to not being happy with what I was doing. And then from then on, I just took a few months to get things in order, but I had already made the decision. Have you had any splurges since you became a millionaire at all? Car, well, watch, vacation of sorts, first class? Car is not. I think I'll probably, we're setting up a trip to Italy, and I think I will fly first class because I'm a little claustrophobic anyway, and I just don't like economy seats. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Hey, you're a millionaire. You deserve it. Well, we did. We bought uh, a couple of toys. We like to drive off-road vehicles, and so we bought it. They're not super expensive. They're like $14,000, but we did buy a new one of those because I had a long, sad history of those things breaking down in the middle of nowhere. And we bought a new fishing boat because my wife and I are both We're in the south. Of course, we're bass fishermen. And uh, I had always had used wrecks of boats. And after six trips in a row where the boat broke down, I finally broke down and spent like 20,000 on a, on a fishing boat. But you know, that thing will last 20 years and, and the, so will the off-road vehicles. So that was 35,000 bucks we spent on toys. And, and that's a huge, that's more than I spent on the house when I bought it. So that's a huge expenditure to us, but uh, it's still a tiny part of our net worth, you know, less than a percent. So. Well, that's great. I think sometimes so many concentrate on, on the journey to get there 
but there's always something, you know. There's always whether it's a car or a watch or a vacation or something that's that's kind of looming because not everybody just likes to work 100% of the their time. Yeah, I still buy used cars, which is kind of weird. I, I, they're just such a bargain. I mean, they're really nice used cars, but uh, I just have a hard time making myself buy a a brand new car when when a two or three year old car is almost half price and yeah. it really runs just as well. Yeah. But Steve, what kind of mistakes have you made along the way? You know, I've really kind of had a charmed life. I've made very few uh, mistakes that I look back on and regret. There is one. And that was, that was right when I retired, I, I cashed out all the stock options I had. And, and, and that's why that was such a big year for me. But I had, 60,000 that I could cash out at the very end of my last year or at the very start of the next year. And since I was not going to be working full time the next year, it seemed pretty logical to move that 60,000 from a super high tax bracket, the highest one I'd ever been in, into a much lower tax bracket. And I only had to hold it for like five weeks to do that. But uh, sadly, the things went underwater during those five weeks and I got zero and they expired before I was, they ever came back up for air. So oh, I, I threw $60,000 away on the way out the door and I did it by trying to be smart. I mean, anyone would have told me, yeah, just wait till January. Don't do it in December because you know, you're going to go from making half a million one year to making maybe a hundred thousand at best the next year. It's a no brainer, but who knew, you know, any individual company stock can tank. And ours did. <laughs> of course, it's up again now, but those things expire after a while. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was sixty thousand I didn't get, and that stung a little bit. But it was because I was quote being smart. I was going to save five thousand dollars. You know, it certainly taught me the uh, bird in the hand idea, which I had always stuck to. That was the only time I can ever remember where I deferred income for tax reasons and. Uh, Probably never do that again. That's good. Well, it's it's ironic, but sometimes you can, you know, the stupid guy wins. You know, he can invest in the lottery and, and win a hundred million dollars. It didn't make him any smarter. Uh, and sometimes you can do the thing that odds are is the smart thing, and you may it may get stuck. You know, it's just it's all a matter of probability. So I, I'm pretty philosophical about it, but uh, that's the, cl- the only one I can really think of. What, what advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out? Well, a couple of things. As far as their job, I would, uh, I would advise them uh, to find something they can excel at. I mean, I was just really good at what I did, uh, which is why I can still do things like expert witnessing. Uh, I was recognized in my industry as one of the top guys across the nation. And uh, so the only way you're going to command a decent paycheck is for your company to fear the fact that you might leave. And, and so I would never tolerate just being average at anything. I would find something I could excel at because maximizing your income is, is, I mean, there's only two things you can do to generate wealth. One is to maximize your income and one is to minimize your expenses and then take the difference and, and invest it. And so certainly I would advise people to live frugally. I, you know, cars, Houses and divorce are the three things that just 
destroy people's ability to generate wealth. And of course, I'm the guy that has had one house, one job, and one wife for 40 years, basically. And uh, and you can't do the job necessarily <laughs> or the house necessarily nowadays because people move around. All three of my kids have had more jobs than I ever had, uh, and they're millennials. But you can certainly maximize your income by by becoming excellent at what you do. And you can maximize your savings by not buying expensive new leasing BMWs or whatever it is, you know, showing some discretion, especially early in your career and, and making sure you can max out your 401k and save a little more on top of that. That that would be my advice. And uh, I certainly I, I also would advise people to to uh, stick with their marriage. I mean, work on that thing. It's uh, it, everybody goes through rough times. but I had lots of friends that had that were married three or four times. And, you know, you take your 401k and you split it in half three or four times. And, and I don't care how much money you put in it. There's nothing left. And I mean, that's not the primary reason for having a relationship. But but uh, it is a sad fact that uh, that's one of the most expensive processes anyone can go through, both financially and emotionally. So. I certainly would advise myself to do what I did and uh, find somebody that was very patient like my wife. Have your kids been able to receive some of the same sound advice that your father gave you from you? And are they kind of been more, uh, I guess, on the receiving end and and said, hey, yeah, I'm going to follow this and and follow in my father's footsteps? They would probably say they're following in their mother's footprints because she's extremely frugal and practical, but, uh, they all, they all were, had great study habits. And so I didn't pay a penny for any of their colleges or even room and board. They all got free rides. And, and that was with me, you know, not need, they couldn't get any needs-based scholarships. They got them all on just academics. So they were very bright, had good study habits and, uh, basically paid their way through college. And then their secondary degrees, they paid those outright. I didn't even offer to pay those. So among the three of them, there's three engineering degrees, an education degree, a business degree, and a medical doctor degree. So they're a highly educated group. And uh, uh, they're doing pretty well. Uh, my son is uh, the medical doctor, and, and he's going to be the income king because he's in a he's in a specialty. I looked it up the other day that the median salary is $467,000 a year. He won't get it for another six years when he gets out of residency, but he won't have to have a whole lot of years at that to uh, build up a, a pretty huge investment a portfolio. Uh, my one daughter is an engineer and one daughter is a college educator that works with athletes, but they're very frugal. Uh, they, my wife gave them money for like clothes once a year at a fairly early age and they learned that if they blew it early, they just didn't have any clothes. And so to this day, they shop at Goodwill and thrift shops and consignment stores and that nothing thrills them like finding, you know, a dress for $6 or something. So they, they are probably more frugal than uh, we are. And so, uh, yeah, I find that they, they don't have any debt and, uh, uh, they save money. So I, I think they, we were open with them about my dad's finances, about our finances. We didn't tell them how, how much money we had when they were in grade school or even high school, because 
I I just didn't know that they needed to be going to school talking about their millions of dollars their parents had. But once they got college age, we leveled with them about, you know, exactly what we had and how we got it. And uh, uh, they were kind of kind of floored over the fact that we had that much because they had always said that they were the poorest kids they knew because we just didn't uh, give them much money. We made them find jobs and work uh, like we had as kids. And uh, uh, I think they might have been a little upset with the fact that we could have uh, treated them a lot better than we did. But they got over it and uh, they seem to have pretty steady habits now. Good stuff. All right, Steve, with a net worth over $3 million, thanks for coming on the show today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for thanks, asking. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.